You guys might remember last week I talked to you about the confrontational nature of this little section in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has come into Jerusalem uh, riding on the donkey, the triumphal entry. He's cleared the temple of uh, worship, not worship, but of uh, the, he overturned the tables of the money changers, all of that, and it di- really disrupted things, and the religious leaders hated what Jesus had done. And so last week we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians bring an accusation against Jesus, trying to trap him in his words. And today we're going to observe a group called the Sadducees attempt something similar, attempt to challenge Jesus. So let's actually start off by reading the first half of the first verse of our passage today. Verse 18, the first half says, And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Now before we consider the challenge that this group brought against Jesus on this day, we have to consider the group themselves, this people called the Sadducees. Uh, They were, like the Pharisees, a religious group from that era, but they were the opposite of the Pharisees in almost every way. It's interesting, Jesus actually had plenty of views that the Pharisees also held. And, and, and for example, they both had a high view of Scripture. They didn't always come to the same conclusions, but they both had a high view of Scripture. But the Sadducees were not in line with Jesus in any way. And this is the only time in Mark's gospel that the Sadducees are mentioned. And they're really not detailed like the Pharisees are in Scripture. But there are some characteristics about them that we can glean from uh, just a simple study of of history, historians like Josephus from around this time. One thing we can learn about the Sadducees first is that they rejected the supernatural. They rejected the supernatural. This is really the most important thing for you to know about the Sadducees because it's actually going to be the foundation from which they challenge Jesus. They're going to challenge him about something in the supernatural realm. Uh, They didn't believe, in other words, in the spiritual dimension at all. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death or any resurrection of God's people to live in heaven forever with God. They didn't believe in any of that, and, and that was kind of why they were coming with this challenge against Jesus. But a second thing to know about the Sadducees is this. They had a low view of the Bible. They had a low view of the Bible. Though they likely read and studied other parts of the Bible, uh, it seems that they really were only allegiant to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Those were the only books that they considered authoritative. Um, they, they thought that later prophets and later writers could not possibly have said something as pure as Moses had written. And so rather than highly esteem all of the Bible, they had an esteem for part of it and a low view, really, of all of it. And a third and final thing I think that you should know about the Sadducees today is that they were the minority view during the time that that Jesus lived, but they were actually in the highest positions of religious or clerical power in that day. Even though the people generally disagreed with the Sadducees and the Pharisees outnumbered 
the Sadducees. The Sadducees had ascended the ranks and had become the aristocratic, wealthy, and influential religious group in Israel. They were well-educated, yet skeptical of anything supernatural, and so they became the religious elite. Now, in our modern times, it's not hard to imagine a corollary in the day in which we live. Imagine sitting down and watching the History Channel, and they're producing an episode on such and such a place and time, and they're looking for perhaps a Christian scholar to weigh in on something from antiquity. Now, there are plenty of conservative, biblically astute, solid Christian scholars out there, but generally, these will not be the guys that get called and give interviews in a place like that. No, today's liberal theologians and scholars, and I don't mean politically liberal, but theologically liberal, they're generally the ones that people will call and say, hey, what do you think about this, or what do you think about that? And they'll generally doubt everything in scripture. And the ancient Sadducees in Jesus' day are like those modern liberal theologians in our time today. Now, like I said, this group did not believe in the supernatural, so this meant that they did not believe in the future resurrection of God's people. That's why it says in verse 18, if you look again in your Bibles with me, and Sadducees came to him who say, there is no resurrection. Now, I want to be clear so that you understand what, where this argument is going. Uh, this is not Mark's way of saying that they doubted Jesus's resurrection. They didn't even know that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They didn't know about these events that would unfold in just a few days from the point of this conversation. What they were doubting was a standard doctrine at that time, and a stack, standard doctrine of biblical Christianity in our time, that in, in the future, there will be a resurrection of all people, some to eternal life and some to eternal death. And so they wanted to challenge Jesus on this belief. They thought it was a silly biblical concept, the resurrection from the dead. And so this is what they did in verse 18 and following. Let's read it together. We already looked at the first half of verse 18. and the second half, it says, and they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, verse 23, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Now, if Modern Sadducees were asking this question, trying to ridicule the resurrection. They might say something along the lines of, hey, there was a woman, she was married to a few men in the course of her lifetime, and eventually they all came to know God. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Kind of chuckling at it. But in their era, they asked that same kind of question in a different kind of way. They posed to Jesus an elaborate hypothetical situation that might seem 
confusing to us at first, but actually made perfect sense to everybody that heard it uh, that day. Their whole hypothetical situation was based on an Old Testament practice called leveret marriage. Leveret marriage. It's got nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It comes from the word levir, which means brother. So a brother standing in for a deceased brother in marriage. And it was Mosaic law for the society of ancient Israel. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5 and 10, uh, taught this leveret marriage. And the basic idea was that if a man was married to a woman and he died and, and before they'd had a, had a chance to bear an heir, that woman would be in jeopardy in her life. She would not be able to retain the land rights that her husband uh, had given to her through marriage without an heir. So if there was a living brother, he would then take responsibility for that widow and they would try to bear a child together. And if they had a child, then that child would be the heir of the deceased man and the land would stay with the woman and thus stay with her son, with her child. It's obviously an interesting or strange kind of passage to us, but it was actually a, a great protection that God had installed in that kind of culture at that kind of time in the people of Israel's lives. But the Sadducees, they took this law from Deuteronomy as a way to mock the idea of life after death. And they used this Old Testament societal law as the way to, to do it. They painted a picture of this family with seven brothers who all died before they could raise an heir with this one woman, this one deadly woman, apparently. All seven of these brothers in this hypothetical situation had this woman as a wife, and so the Sadducees built it all up so that they could finally then ask the question, in the resurrection, if there is such a thing, when everybody rises again, whose wife will she be? And I imagine them all laughing and looking at each other because, man, they'd been thinking for a long time about this question. They thought that it was the nail in the coffin on the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. They'd probably stumped so many people with this argument or line of thinking in the past. Let's see what Jesus said to them, however, in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Let's stop right there. I want to first point out Jesus' first words. He said or asked, is this not the reason you are wrong? They were wrong. And Jesus was about to tell them how they were wrong and why they were wrong. But they were wrong. They were misinformed. And I mention this because we live in a time when, though it should be obvious that some are wrong and some are right, many like to imagine, especially for some re reason in matters pertaining to religion, that everyone is somehow right. Or perhaps more popularly, that everyone but Christians are right, that Christianity is the lone wrong religion. Simultaneously, in this worldview, everything can be right even when they are in contradiction with each other. There's your truth, there's my truth, but there's no the truth. 
It's insane. But Jesus knew that these Sadducees were wrong about what they thought about life after death. And so he told them, you are wrong. And now he's about to tell them why. He gave them two major reasons why they were wrong. Look at them there in verse 24. The first reason that he mentioned was, you don't know the scriptures. The second reason that they were wrong was, you don't know the power of God. They didn't know the Bible and they didn't know God's power. Now Jesus is gonna elaborate or expand on or unpack both of those concepts. They didn't know the scripture and they didn't know the power of God. But he's gonna do them in reverse order. The first thing he's gonna deal with is the fact they didn't know the power of God. So let's look at that in verse 25. He said, when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. For when they rise from the dead, he said, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, like I said, verse 25 that we just read, this is Jesus' way of showing them that they don't know anything about the power of God. They don't know about God's power. They didn't realize that God would raise people from the dead, verse 25. They didn't understand that in the resurrected state, God's people would not marry or be given in marriage. And they didn't comprehend that in matters of marriage in heaven, God would make us, have the power to make us like angels who never marry. Now, I know that there's a lot of questions that come up just from reading this verse. You know, questions like, is there really no marriage in heaven? Will we know each other in heaven? Will there be anything special about our relationship with our loved ones on earth when we're in heaven? And I do want to tackle those questions today. But first, I want you to see this problem in the Sadducees' thinking. Jesus already said it. They didn't know the power of God. They were ignorant of it. And because they couldn't imagine God's power, they couldn't believe that God could raise people, make them like angels, do any of the stuff that Jesus mentioned in verse 25. They were naturalists, and they objected to anything supernatural, anything they couldn't count and calculate by themselves. They forgot to account for this, God's power. They just didn't put it in the equation. And this lack of conviction about God's power, I believe, often leads people today into the Sadducean error. For example, you might read something in the Bible. You might hear a doctrine announced from Scripture. And since you can't put God's power into the equation, you might consider that Scripture that you read or that scriptural doctrine that you heard a falsehood because you've not considered the power of God. You've not put his ability and transcendence into the equation. Let me give you a few examples that many wrestle with even in our modern time. Take the Christian and biblical teaching or doctrine of the Trinity. You know, the Bible makes a few truths abundantly clear about the triunity of God. One thing that the Bible makes clear is that God is one. You know, we've never, as God's people all throughout the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, we've never been polytheists. We've, we've always been monotheists. We've always believed that God is one. This is the Israelite Shema that they used to pray and say or even do still today. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is 
one. So that, the Bible makes it abundantly clear. God is one. But the Bible also portrays God as the Father, portrays God as the Son, Jesus, and portrays God as the Spirit. So the Bible demonstrates God is one, but also declares God is three persons at the same time. Now additionally, on top of those two truths, God is one, but here he is in three persons, the Bible also declares the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to be distinct from one another. In other words, there are passages where all three are present at the same time. God doesn't show up, in other words, in the Bible as Father one day, as Jesus one day, and as Spirit another day. No, he's all three at the same time. So God is one, but he is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons. So, listen to this. Though our minds cannot accurately fathom this truth, the historical Christian church has concluded that God is a trinity, the, the, the triunity of God. But if someone doesn't take into account the mysterious and transcendent power of God, they'll never believe such a doctrine. That was the Sadducees' problem. They didn't know, like Jesus said, the power of God. Here's another example I think many would wrestle with in our modern time. The infallible nature of of God's word. That's a doctrine of scripture. It's inerrant, inf infallible. We hold it to be a perfect book in its original transmission to us. But someone might object and say, hey, an infallible book cannot be written by fallible people. Human beings were involved in the Bible, so they are fallible. Uh, an infallible book cannot be produced by fallible people. Now, now on one hand, we could respond to that statement by saying something like, well, I think a fallible person made that statement. So I don't know that I can even trust the words that are being spoken to me. And around and around we go until we could believe that there is nothing that we can actually know in this life. But what I'm trying to say is that we must account for the power of God. You know, you could go to the beach and take a crooked stick but still draw a straight line in the sand and God's power can carry along imperfect people to get the Bible written perfectly. God's power, in other words, makes it possible. Let me give you one last example before we move on. Some would say that human beings aren't as bad as the Bible reports. You know, Romans 3, 8 through 10, we're all under sin. It paints a bleak picture of humanity, even though we're made in the image of God and have potential to do things that reflect the godness, the, the godlikeness that is within us, uh, we are under sin. We've fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches us. There's no way that we uh, can be joined to him without his intervention. But some would say, no, we're not under sin like that. There's no way that we're as vastly separated from God and his glory as the Bible declares. But what this is, is a profound rejection of God's majestic power. If, if he's not holy, if he's not beyond us, if he's not perfect in all his ways, then yeah, sure, we're not as fallen and broken and far off from him as the Bible declares. 
The only way that one can believe that humanity is born in fellowship with God is to have a low view of God. But when you know the power of God, you understand to a greater degree the depravity and brokenness of man. So I I hope you can see, just from a few examples, how this Sadducean rejection of God's power set the Sadducees on the wrong course in a thousand ways. And, And when you read the Bible, please account for the power of God. Concepts like divine justice, you know, when God is dealing with the nations in the past, in the pages of the Old Testament. Or divine election, where he's choosing his people. Or even the gospel itself, only makes sense when the power of God is considered. If God is weak and limited, yeah, you can't trust the concepts of Scripture. But since he is who he says he is, his word can be trusted. All right, so I just wanted to point all that out to you because it's really what the thrust of this passage is about. But Jesus did say some funny things about marriage, so let's talk about that for a second uh, before we move on further. He, he, He said that we would be like angels in heaven in verse 25. The the key word there is the word like. We're like angels when we get to heaven in a particular category, the marriage category. Angels don't get married. Angels don't procreate, and neither will we when we get to heaven. The Bible never teaches that we'll become actual angels when we are resurrected. You're not gonna get your wings. When you hear people talking like that at a funeral, oh, God needed another angel, you don't need to correct them in that time and space. That'd be awkward, but it's theologically unsound. It's not the truth. We're gonna be resurrected, raised. We're gonna be above the angels. Right now, Hebrews teaches us we are below the angels, but one day we will go above the angels, and actually, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will judge the angels in that resurrected state. But one way that we'll be like the angels in heaven is that we won't marry and we won't procreate. Now, this has troubled some people. And it might be troubling to some of you. And honestly, I'm sympathetic to it. I got a great marriage. I'm married to an incredible person. And this kind of statement, at first glance, because I don't know about eternity, I've never been in heaven, and I haven't tasted the glories of that space, it kind of brings me a little sadness, you know? Like, oh man, won't Christina be special to me for all of eternity? And honestly, if you are married, and when I read those verses, you got a little bit excited, like, oh, sweet, I won't have to be married forever. Um, You know, I'm joking around a little bit, but I'm also wanting to say to you, hey, get some help, reach out, get some counseling, and get some support so that you might have a little bit of sadness about a verse like this. It's okay to feel that way. But on the other hand, I don't want to go too far with Jesus' words. You know, I don't think it's right to conclude from his statement, in other words, that there will, there will be no gender in heaven, that there will be no intimate or important relationships in heaven, and that there will be no recollection at all of our earthly life within heaven. I don't think that this passage takes us quite that far. On the, on the contrary, there's actually indications in Scripture that we will remember our family relationships, that we will remember them in eternity. Remember the passage in Luke chapter 16 about Abraham's bosom and the man who recognized his family from uh, the other side of the grave. But here's a question. Why won't there be marriage 
in heaven. Why won't there be marriage in heaven? Well, for one, uh, there's no need for procreation in heaven. Procreation is the word I'm using because this is a family Bible study. Uh, Today, we are meant to fill the earth and subdue it. We're supposed to populate this place. And many believe that for that population to thrive, it has to, at least at minimum, replace its current population. And some people are actually worried about that in our time. You know, Americans and then also nations like France or Germany or Japan or or the UK, uh, they're not repopulating at replacement rate. We're actually getting older as populations and smaller as populations at the same time. And many speculate this is going to have long-term impacts on the economy, the experience of old age, and immigration, to name a few impacts. But in heaven, we're not going to have any worries about this kind of thing. The population will be fixed. Nobody new comes in. Nobody there goes out. We just remain. And additionally, in heaven, there won't be any need through procreation to raise up young believers for Jesus. In marriage on earth, God is looking for, and I quote from Malachi 2.15, godly offspring. That's what God is looking for from marriages. And couples who can, should raise kids for God's glory here on earth. But in heaven, we will all be godly and we will all be mature. There will be no need to raise a new generation of believers. Therefore, no need for procreation. But another reason why there will be no marriage in heaven is because in heaven there won't be any sin. And that means that every relationship that we will have in heaven will be operating at its fullest capacity, its healthiest level. You see, on earth today, we require special relationships to help us get through life. You know, we just need people to help us get through the rigors of what it means to be human. And sometimes that's a spouse, sometimes that's friends, sometimes it's both. Uh, but in heaven, the entire community will be a community uh, with, with each other. The need for companionship, which is a major reason, the big reason in Genesis chapter 2 for marriage, uh, will be solved ultimately in God in heaven and then with everyone else. And then finally, another reason why there's no marriage in heaven is that there is actually one marriage in heaven. The Bible says that marriage today is meant to be a metaphor for Christ's marriage to the church. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 32, this mystery about oneness in marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This means that married couples today are meant to model Jesus's marriage to his people. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church, and wives are to follow their husband like the church is supposed to follow Christ. But even at their best, earthly marriages are a mere shadow of the ultimate reality. And one day in heaven, the ultimate marriage will occur, and God's people will be reunited without any gaps whatsoever in time, space, or experience. We will be reunited with God. Like in the Garden of Eden, we will be completely joined together with him. All right, so that's the first way that Jesus responded. But let's close by seeing the second way that Jesus responded to these 
religious leaders. He said, and for the dead being raised, verse 26, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now remember, Jesus had said that the Sadducees didn't know the power of God. We already looked at that. But secondly, that they didn't know the scriptures. That's what he's pointing out here. When he talked about heaven, he showed them, you don't get God's power. But here he's showing them, you don't get God's word. He brought them all the way back to Exodus 3 and 4. That's not what he said. He didn't, they hadn't notated the Bible in that way yet, divided it up, Exodus 3 and 4. He instead said, the passage about the bush. That was a, re- a reference to the burning bush that Moses saw that was not consumed on the backside of the wilderness before he was called to go deliver Israel from Egypt. And in that passage... One the Sadducees said was authoritative, by the way. Exodus was part of the Bible that they thought had weight. God referred to himself, Jesus said, by saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. This was an important statement for every Israelite, even the Sadducees. And Jesus' point was simple. God didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but they're, of course, all dead now. No, Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Even though Abraham had died centuries before Moses came around, Abraham was alive when God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham. Isaac was alive too, so God said, I am the God of of Isaac and Jacob was alive as well. All three, though they'd been dead for centuries, were and are alive. Now Jesus' statement is so wise and so pers- per- per- uh, so perceptive. No, no shocker there, right? Jesus is so astute in his observation. He understood the word because he authored the word, and his words are a corrective. Partly a corrective against modern people who look at the Old Testament and say, you know, they really didn't have any idea about the afterlife. Jesus goes all the way back to Exodus 3 and 4 and demonstrates that by careful study of God's words, you could have already begun building a theology of life after death. All the way back in Exodus, God talked about being the current God of men who walked with him many centuries earlier. So what was Jesus doing there? He was combating their erroneous ideas about the resurrection, about life after death, with a true interpretation of the Bible. So he taught them from Exodus how God is the God of the living. And if Jesus wanted to, by the way, he could have just begun rattling off from Genesis all the way through Malachi, verse after verse, that clarified that there is something in Uh, life after death. He could have gone to many places all throughout the Old Testament. But I want to just give a simple exhortation before I wrap this up today. Know your Bible. Let it be a regular part of your life. These Sadducees didn't know the power of God, but they also didn't know the scriptures. You cannot live by bread alone, but you got to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to read the word. We need to know the word. 
And if you don't read the Bible, you know, 2021 is coming. Get yourself a Bible reading calendar and start plowing through Scripture. Be in the constant consumption of the Bible. And I invite you to join me as I go verse by verse through the Old Testament and our, through the Bible study at our midweek. Right now, we're in the book of Exodus, taking a little break right now for Christmas, but it'll give you time to catch up if you haven't joined us. Go back and get current so that you can continue on in God's word. And as you read and study the word, respect it. Here's the correct attitude to have. 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, before I let you go, I want to conclude by saying something about the Sadducean presence today, because I believe that there is a growing influence of the Sadducean mindset in the worldwide visible church in our modern time. There's a growing movement in our world during this time called progressive Christianity. It isn't really Christianity at all because it eventually denies the Bible's core doctrines and replaces them with naturalistic secularism. Like the Sadducees, progressive Christians are atheist-ish. They're ruled by emotions and veil themselves with Christian terminology and practices. They deny the scriptures, though, and the power of God. And they are eerily similar to the Sadducees of Jesus' time. And I want to show you some similarities before I let you go, because I think this is a vital and important thing. Modern progressive Christians are like the Sadducees in that they will try to prove their points with riddles. Rather than wrestle with the Bible... They think they can defeat biblical doctrines by asking skeptical questions. Theirs is the wrong kind of skepticism. There's a good kind of skepticism, but there's, there, for them, there's no real honest search for answers on the pages of Scripture. Instead, they ask challenging questions and scoff at the Bible, but there's no honest intellectual pursuit for the answers, and the answers exist. Secondly, modern progressive Christians are like the Sadducees in that they will try to debunk or destroy the Bible with the Bible. These Sadducees in our story mocked the biblical doctrine of the resurrection by appealing to a passage in Deuteronomy. And in our modern day, it's common to hear progressive Christians denounce things like hell because, well, the Bible says that God is love. God is love. It's in the Bible. We know it to be true as believers, but so is hell. It's also in the Bible. And we must work to see how both doctrines coexist and even complement each other. For me, I think that God's love requires eternal judgment. Another example would come from society's emerging views on sexuality. You know, when President Barack Obama was championing civil unions, uh, he said, if people find this controversial, then I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is, in my mind, for my faith, more central than an obscure passage in the book of Romans. This was his way of pitting one scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, which I don't think he really understood, against the book of Romans, which is not obscure. It's probably the most important book of the New Testament. But he's pitting Romans and the Sermon on the Mount against each other. 
but all scripture is God-breathed. You can't be a Jesus's words-only Christian, but all of God's word must be embraced and balanced and studied together. Also, modern progressive Christians are like the Sadducees in that they want to delete the supernatural. They don't know the power of God, so they eventually reject Jesus's resurrection, the pillar event on which Christianity rises. And when they talk about the miraculous in the Bible, they excuse it away. So Jesus didn't walk on water, but Jesus walked on a sandbar, and there was a mirage that made the disciples think that Jesus was walking on water. There's usually no mention about how Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and I guess started drowning in the sand? I don't know. But these are the kinds of excuses that are given to eliminate the supernatural. Remember the story where Jesus fed the 5,000? Oh, 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 in that story, don't worry. It really wasn't a miracle, but when the little boy produced the five loaves and the two fish, everybody there was panged in their conscience. They were guilty because they had withheld their lunches from everyone else. So in a miraculous act of generosity, everybody busted out their food and they fed their loaves and fish to everybody else. No, that's ridiculous. Slowly, for the progressive Christian, all the supernatural events which require the power of God are eliminated. Creation, the parting of the Red Sea, Jonah, all of it is explained away because they don't know the power of God. And modern progressive Christians are like the Sadducees in that they never produce life, but they have to hijack life. They come into communities of faith, disguising themselves like believers, podcasting like their believers in an attempt to upset the faith of existing Christians. They don't have an evangelistic campaign. The unbelieving world is not interested in talking to them or debating with them about scripture because they already don't believe it. So progressive Christians will sneak into churches and put on an air of spirituality. They'll use Christian terminology, but those terms for them carry different definitions. The Sadducees did this, by the way. You know, there's some evidence that they knew that they couldn't say, we don't believe in the resurrection, so they said, we believe in the resurrection, but whenever they talked about it, what they really meant was, well, we don't believe in life after death, but we believe that if you have kids, it's kind of like you're living beyond the grave, so that's the resurrection that we believe in. It's a different idea than what the Bible teaches. What I'm meaning is that they had to manipulate and twist scriptures in order to hijack the life of the believing community. They cannot produce life, but must hijack it. And to hijack it, pretension is required. So in this passage today, Jesus responded well to the challenge that the Bible is just a silly book filled with silly teachings. And we must believe Jesus and the conclusions that he taught. The reason this is so important is because it's a life or death issue. To get life after death, you have to believe that Jesus is the son of God, God the son, who became a man and died for the world's sins and then rose from the dead. And once the Sadducean error begins to creep into your heart, you'll eventually doubt that Jesus ever bought you And 1 Peter 2, verse 1 says that when that occurs, you will bring upon yourself swift destruction. So let's not be a people who mock the word, but honor the word. For it has come from the God 
who saved 